Is there anybody there? It seems I'm all alone again. Does anybody care? This planet's empty. I see no signs of life. Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive. There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Hey everybody, 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 welcome, welcome. Yes, indeed, it is Friday, September 15th, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chickens Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And look, if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a review. Leave us that five-star review. Give it right up there. Whatever platform you listen on, and leave a comment to let other folks know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show. It's true. It's great. Well, on today's show, the UAW began a targeted strike against the big three car companies, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, that is. Um, Stellantis, of course, owns Chrysler and Jeep and, you know. So after those fa- companies failed to make any kind of reasonable counteroffer to the union's demands. So that was, you know, they gave a deadline last night, hit the deadline, boom, now the strike starts. This is the first time the UAW has struck all three automakers at the same time. Only 13,000 of UAW's 150,000 members are actively walking strike lines today. But UAW uh, President Sean Fain made it clear that more strike lines will go up if the companies continue to block an agreement. This One of the issues on the table, the UAW's fight, that's not getting as much attention um, as their wage and working hours demands. The working conditions and plants gearing up for the electric vehicle manufacturing. In other words, making that transition to getting off fossil fuels. Luis Feliz Leon has a great piece at In These Times about this, and we'll get into that for a little bit. Meanwhile, the strikes by SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild continue with no end in sight. The Writers Guild strike has been uh, going since May 2nd, and SAG-AFRA began its strike on July 14th. There was some moves. Say the studios wanted to start negotiating again next week with the Writers Guild. Is this just their latest attempt to kind of break the solidarity between the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA? Right? Is this actually being done in good faith, or is just just more smoke and mirrors by the by the studios? We shall see. And thanks to Democrat Joe Manchin and his friends in the Republican Party, childhood poverty more than doubled this year. The astounding jump is a direct result of the refusal by all Senate Republicans and Democrat Joe Manchin to reauthorize Biden's child tax credit, expanded child tax credit, which was shown to cut child poverty in half, which also proved that childhood poverty is a policy decision, not some sort of force of nature. We have the ability to stop it, and we have chosen, as a government, to not do that and send those children back into poverty. It's all about the children, right, folks? And Hurricane Lee is bearing down on Maine and parts of Canada with landfall expected Saturday at late Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. 
And New England coastlines are already feeling the effects of the storm. They're expecting, you know, 12, 13 foot waves and all this stuff. And Biden has already approved an emergency emergency declaration for Maine, more from our climate dystopian future. And in Southern, the Southern Poverty Law Center has issued a new report that focuses on the extremism in the Penridge School Board. Yes, our backyard. The report, When Moms for Liberty Flips a School Board, it focuses on how Moms for Liberty Hillsdale College and Vermilion Education successfully worked to push through their agenda in Penridge. The report also provides a rich history and background of the hate groups fueling the takeover. This is great, necessary reading, <clears throat> absolutely tools for the struggle. Uh, this coming Tuesday, members of ABSCUF, that's the faculty union that represents the faculty at the state system of higher education, well, they're going to get a significant update on contract negotiations for the first time since the contract expired on June 30th, 2023. Faculty and coaches have been working without a contract since the contract expired. And the latest update, um, I'll just give you a sample. The latest update following the September 13th negotiations was simply this. Faculty contract negotiations continued yesterday and today between the Association of Pennsylvania State College and University Faculties and the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. The negotiations teams discussed student feedback, class cancellations, faculty classification, and retrenchment issues. That's it. That's the entire update. That's pretty much how the updates have been throughout the entire negotiations. They maybe will talk generally about how they, what they talked about, but there's no sense of what, what is actually happening in negotiations, at least for members. Um, maybe people in leadership have uh, better uh, ideas about that. But um, for those of us who are right now who are just members of the union, um, Tuesday will be a members only town hall where we'll be getting an update to figure out what's preventing uh, an agreement. What's the holdup here, folks? The next round of negotiations, by the way, between ABSCUF and the state system of higher education is not expected until October. And multiple lawsuits have been filed to keep Donald Trump off the PA presidential ballot. Yeah, we'll see how that happens. We'll see about that. And the Bucks County Beacon launches a fall fund drive to help sustain fearless local reporting rooted in community support. As the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, says in his article announcing their fund drive, quote, If we're going to be here for the long haul and save Bucks County from becoming a news desert where extremism and authoritarian flourishes, we need the community to invest in this independent media project. That's really pretty much as plain as it gets. <clears throat> Now, for more PA Progressive Talk, you can tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream, 9 p.m. every single night. Check him out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, you know, wherever you get your streams. And make sure you subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across, across all his platforms. And check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind that podcast. Rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast at Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. <clears throat> and if you haven't heard The Signal's a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. Yes, the same Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly, Twice a month, the signal will shine a light on right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. You can check out that podcast at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com. And you may have also just caught the first episode of a brand new podcast also streaming at the buckscountybeacon.podbean.com at this point. 
called the Civic Circle. The Civil Civic Circle is the Beacon's new Gen Z focused and run podcast um, by three amazing young women um, from Bucks County that are talking about issues of concern. The first episode was focused on some of the climate stuff that, um, that we're facing right now. But that is going to be an amazing addition to our media landscape here in Bucks County and beyond. Um, so check it all out right now at the thebuckscountybeacon.podbean.com or pick it up wherever you get your podcasts. For all you gamers out there, the Game In, that's with two N's, the Game In is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show. They've got everything from retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And look, you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, they've got you covered. Check them out on their Facebook page or follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In, again with two N's. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. You can check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at @songadayman. That's with two N's, at @songadayman on Twitter. Now, coming up on Out to Coop Live, yep, coming up this Monday, September 18th at 7 p.m., I'm going to be welcoming Cyril Michalico and Emily Smith to the show. So now Cyril, of course, is the editor-in-chief of the Bucks County Beacon, and Emily is the producer. I'm sorry, the producer, the publisher. I'm looking like what I'm doing right now, is the publisher of The Beacon. Now we're going to be talking about the role of independent community-based media and deepening local democracy and organizing against the rise of extremism in our schools and our communities. We'll also be talking about their goals for their upcoming or their actually newly launched fall fund drive and plans for expanding The Beacon's work in the months and years to come. Do tune in for a truly community-rooted event this coming Monday, September 18th at 7 p.m. right here on Raging Chickens Out to Keep Live. And look, we want a progressive future. We need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches Homegrown Progressive Media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. We're here for the fight, and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement, and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, welcome, everybody. It is a Friday, indeed, um, and there is in our nonstop uh, kind of world that we have here. Um, seems like, uh, you know, in some levels, you know, school has started for the year, that big kind of end of summer, beginning of the school year chaos is uh, beginning to settle down. Uh, and as we're starting to learn more and more about what the implications of uh, the uh, radical school board, radical right-wing school board in uh, the Penridge School District is going to have, we're also gearing up toward the uh, November 7th elections uh, for school board elections, municipal elections, which are going to be significant. Um, uh, voter turnout is going to be really important. We've already seen lots of folks in the communities knocking doors, um, supporting uh, candidates who are going to push back against the extremism that has turned uh, the Penridge School District and the Bucks County School, I'm sorry, the Central Bucks School District um, toward really kind of anti-democratic ends. Um, so lots at stake this year, um, <clears throat> we know, and we know that, you know, it is that kind of direct action that gets the goods. It's going to be involvement and people pushing back and saying, no, we don't want this. Uh, now there couldn't be a, a more clear example of what it looks like for kind of organized resistance than what we saw, uh, happen kind of the announcements from late last night from the UAW. Um, the UAW now is uh, basically starting uh, and ramping up uh, its strike. So um, now there's about 150,000 uh, UAW workers that are covered under the current contracts that are being negotiated. Uh, agreement has not been reached for any of them. 
Um, and the UAW has been, uh, you know, very pretty bold in its demands. And there's good reason for that, um, precisely because, uh, you know, the massive amounts of profits that these corporations have been kind of reaping in and deciding that, you know what, we don't need to share it with our workers. We just need to keep it for ourselves, right? Um, so that's kind of like the way, you know, that uh, Sean Fain, the newly elected, uh, well, you know, one of the first democratically elected, uh, fully democratic elected UAW presidents uh, has um, basically, you know, staked his claims on that we're going to have a fighting union again. We're going to have a fighting union that is going to um, stand up and make bold, um, bold uh, um, demands um, based upon the reality of, uh, you know, their working lives and the culture, right? I mean, uh, you know, it is so good, I have to say, to see um, leadership. We saw this also with the, uh, the, the UPS um, negotiations where they almost struck. That would have been like 300, 350,000 plus uh, workers would have been on strike. Um, they did reach an agreement. Um, they got most, almost all of what they wanted, right? There was, you know, some concessions, obviously. That's what happens all the time. Danielle, good morning. Good morning, Danielle is with us today. Um, to, uh, you know, have folks on, uh, you know, basically saying like, look, we're not going to make, you know, um, concessions because we're told that, you know, we're in crisis so we don't have the money because we know that there's been like fistfuls of profits, right? Record profits that have been reaped in from corporate America. Um, not just the UAW, but, you know, UPS, right? Um, and a lot of those gains were made through the pandemic, um, on the backs of those workers, right? And when you see kind of record profits being reaped, like, you know, some cases 40% increase in profits, corporate profits um, in, the, um, in the aftermath of the pandemic, uh, while workers' uh, wages um, barely moved, right? Um, the only thing that has moved those wages um, upwards has been, number one, uh, a whole lot of workers saying, screw this, I'm not sticking around with crappy jobs anymore. And then we're going to kind of go look for better wage paying jobs. Suddenly these, you know, companies who have been relying upon paying workers $7.25, $7.50, $8, $9 an hour, suddenly found out that they don't have any workers, right? And if they actually want to get workers back to actually come back to in-person work, then they're going to have to pay them what they're worth. Um, and so then we saw some wages kind of creep up because of that. But it wasn't just that. It was also unprecedented waves of organizing um, new sectors of workers. We saw this at Starbucks. We see this at Amazon. We've seen this at kind of both small and large um, organizations. We saw undergraduate workers right, unionize um, for the first time um, out in Illinois, I believe. Um, we see unprecedented amounts of uh, uh, adjunct labor and graduate students and faculty beginning to organize. Uh, we've seen teacher strikes um, like we haven't seen before. Um, you know, people actually have been told, you know, there's, you know, there's only so far propaganda can go, right? I mean, you can be told that you're an essential worker and, you know, we have people come out and, and clap for you and say that you, you know, thank you so much workers for sustaining us through the, uh, through the pandemic. We appreciate you so much, right? There's only so far those words can go if it's not backed by kind of real commitments, right? So in other words, you know, if I'm sitting there and I'm saying, okay, you're cheering me on because of like, you know, uh, you know, this happens in my in my own job, right? You say, um, you're going to cheer cheer us on the faculty hard work that faculty put in to get everyone through the pandemic, having to put everything online, kind of jock all of both family and work at the same time and getting students through and congratulations. 
And then a minute we want some kind of flexibility in our working hours, the minute that we want kind of some compensation that it's going to recognize us, what do we get in return? We get job cuts, we get consolidations of universities, we get kind of a worsening of our workloads, um, we get kind of declining conditions and refusal of a recognition of, um, um, you know, even like medical conditions like we talked about with Steve Oros here, which we're still going to get him on the show at some point. Right. But the UAW has said no. Right. The UAW said, nope, look, we're putting a line in the sand. They work very closely with UPS and talk with uh, open with UPS uh, workers and organizers and leadership over the summer. And they were said, yep, we are going to build on this strike wave. We're going to take the summer of strikes and we're going to bring that into the fall. And UAW is now doing that. Now they've targeted um, three areas. Right. So they only have 13,000. Uh, UAW members are currently walking the strike lines today, like at least as of we started the show today. Um, but UAW President Sean Fain has made it clear that, look, if we don't get an agreement, like we don't see we're making progress in negotiations, then more more factory factories are going to get struck, right? Uh, and it's pretty, pretty, uh, you know, kind of impressive to see this kind of um, exercising of kind of worker muscles, if you will. You know, I remember uh, Naomi Klein years ago um, <clears throat> talked about the necessity. I think she was in, I don't know if this is in the Shock Doctrine. No, I think this is actually probably in um, This Changes Everything, a book on kind of climate and resistance, when she said, you know, there, there's a need for, I think she called it like a muscular, more muscular movement. <clears throat> and I remember hearing that at the first time. You're like, that's kind of a weird way to put it. But then as she talks about it, it's like, you know, it's like anything else, right? If we don't move our muscles, if we don't move our bodies, right, our muscles atrophy, right, that we have to exercise, right, we have to exercise, we have to practice, right, we have to do these things in order to keep our bodies in shape. Same is true for anything that we do, whether we're writers, whether we're basketball players, you know, whether we're gardeners, right, you have to keep up the practice in order or else you start to lose those skills. This is the same thing when it comes to worker organizing. Right? Unless you exercise your power and feel what it's like to actually make demands worthy of you as human beings, as, as kind of like working individuals, and just like, I mean, like even as, like I said, as human beings, as the ones who produce, right, um, the goods and the services that kind of allow profits to be had, right? Unless you start making demands that are, you feel represent you accurately, right, then you're going to kind of constantly be making demands that are against your own interest, right? You're going to lose the ability to think that you can have good things. I remember this when, uh, you know, that was part of the claim what the Democrats would say, the Democratic leadership, including folks like Hillary Clinton at the time. Um, they were all kind of like poo-pooing uh, Bernie Sanders' demands, right, the organizing from the progressive left, because they, were, they were basically came out and said, like, look, you know, Bernie and the progressives, they want everybody to have a pony, but, you know, we got to tell them, you know, somebody's got to stand up, you got to be the adults in the room. You got to say, no, everybody can't have a pony. You can't have a pony, right? That kind of disciplining measure that is in some degree has been internalized by lots of us, right? To assume that, you know, well, there's nothing that we can do, or that's just the way the cookie crumbles, or, you know, <clears throat> I wish we could have this. Unfortunately, we can't. But, you know, if we maybe the reason why we can't, we don't have these things, maybe the reason why that things are the way they are is because we haven't kind of had the experience of organizing and making demands that are worthy of who we are as human beings. <clears throat> and that's what the UAW is doing. UAW is saying, you know, look, <clears throat> I'm not here. We're not here to kind of like give you a, like a, 
uh, an acceptable, oh dear, corporate leaders, overlords. We're not here to kind of like say things that we think you th- you will find acceptable. We're going to make demands on our own terms, right? So great article in these times today, um, kind of talking about this. Uh, great article from uh, Luis Feliz Leon and Jane Slaughter. Um, this was actually first published in Labor Notes, uh, reprinted in um, in these times. But they talk about some of these bold demands. And so let me just read just a little bit about some of these bold demands and why this becomes so important. So here, after decades of go along, uh, after decades of a go along union that hollowed out wages and working conditions. The UAW, under newly elected reform leadership, has put forward bold demands. The union is demanding a 40% wage boost and, to, and the end of tiers, like tiers between you're, you're a lower level worker and you're a higher level worker, and basically a divide and conquer system. Production workers hired since 20, 2007 are on a permanent lower track where they forego pensions and retiree health benefits. There are also multiple lower wage tiers, such as the workers in parts distribution centers and many of those making components for electric vehicles, which we'll talk about in a minute. Workers are also demanding a shorter work week, the restoration of cost of living increases pegged to inflation, and the conversion of even lower tier of so-called temporary workers, who can remain in that category for years, into permanent employees after 90 days. As in the audio industry undergoes seismic shifts in the transition from gas power to electric vehicles, workers are demanding job security, the right to um, strike over plant closures, and a working family protection program where laid-off workers could get paid to do community service. In response to union pressure, all three companies have offered to half the time it takes um, full-time seniority workers to reach top pay, from eight years to four. Um, That's still well shy of the union's proposal, a 90-day progression to a top rate. Now, Ford has proposed to convert all current temps to full-time after 90 days, but not future temps. And GM and Stellantis have proposed raising the minimum wage for temps to $20 an hour, up from a current $16.67 an hour and $15.68, and um, uh, respectively. But Stellantis has not proposed a, full path, uh, a path to full-time employment for temps. And GM, they are currently supposed to be converted after two years, but that's often not the reality, Right. <clears throat> and, Sean, and Sean Fain, the union president, said, altogether, we are seeing um, movement from companies, but they are still not willing to agree to the kinds of raises that will make up for inflation on top of decades of falling wages. And the proposals don't reflect the massive profits we've generated for these companies. Now, there you go, right? Now, when we hear, now just to just think about this for a second, when we hear that, oh, these union workers, right? These union workers, they, they're asking for a 40% increase in wages. Oh my God, how could this be? I can't believe that's so crazy. They can't do this. Really? Really? Just think about your own working conditions, right? Think about inflation. Think about like how long you've you've had to work harder for less, how long you that you've been told you can't have a, a, a wage increase that is kind of like uh, that meets even the level of inflation. How long for especially folks who've negotiated union contracts, how long have you kind of accepted like zero percent increase in your wages for one, two, maybe even three years in the contract with only a pittance in the fourth year or the fifth year of the contract? Right? We're told there's nothing that we can do. We're told that we're all broke. Meanwhile, these companies are making profits hand over fist. Right? So look, workers continuously 
have done what they thought, we all thought, was the right thing to do, that we were all in the boat together, right? That sometimes you got to tighten your belts because times are tough so that you're going to get through together. And never was that more clear than during the pandemic, right? When people legitimately, again, and I know there were still deep divisions over, you know, the kind of anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers and the anti-this and the anti-that, all those crazies on the extremes. But for the most Americans, we're like, we felt, look, we were kind of in this together. We got to look, it's, it pays to be nice to each other. It pays to help out. It pays to kind of do what we can to keep everybody safe, Right. The times that we got deliveries of groceries to our to our house or that we had people packaging groceries um, kind of when we went out to get them or we had deliveries, right? Those people that made that possible who work through the pandemic, the folks that were on our healthcare in our, our healthcare industries who worked through the pandemic as to make sure that all of us could survive and be safe. For those folks, folks who worked in kind of in the, you know, in the energy sector who made sure that the lights stayed on, Right. They all recognize it. Look, they're working in hazardous conditions. And, and because of like the decline in revenue, everything was shut down. Everybody knew. Okay, we might have to, we might have to suck it up for a little bit. We might, you know, we're not going to get, you know, increases. We just got to focus on trying to get us through because when we get through, we're being told that we're essential workers. We're being told that we're so important. We're being told that, you know, the whole country is depending upon us and thanks us. But then once the pandemic starts to close out, once things start to open back up, those same people, those same companies that were sitting there in the stands cheering along, what are they doing? They say, look at this. We had a 40% increase in profits over this period of time. We had, in some, some cases, 100% increases in profits. We saw a massive redistribution of wealth to the top 1%. Record corporate profits. Energy and gas sector, right? Record profits. The very people that are kind of sending us all into our climate doom, right, are just, they're swimming in billions of profits. But when it comes from workers to say, hey, you know what? Remember all that? How we basically tightened our belts and put in our work and made sure that we got it? Where's ours? I appreciate the thank you card, but there was nothing in it. <laughs> Right? There's been no recognition of the mental and emotional and physical toll these past five years have had on us just to get us through. Where's the thank you in uh, two extra weeks of vacation for that? Where's the living wage? Where's the comprehensive medical benefits? And then to add insult to injury, you find out those very corporations who were so dependent upon you for your work that gave them record profits, they turn around and they sink millions of dollars into lobbying against giving you more. <laughs> they take away medical care. They want a stripping of your rights. They want to kind of make sure it's harder for you to vote even. The very people who stood there on the bleachers and clapped as you worked, got sick, and cases died to ensure that things kept going. That's how stark it was for the pandemic. And many workers, especially many kind of folks in kind of in organized workers, union workers, who had even been told by their union leadership that, look, there's only so much we can ask, there's so much we can do. They told them to pipe down and accept what they could get, right? 
They told him, oh, don't, don't raise a ruckus. Don't critique your union leader. Trust your union leadership, right? That, this is the best that we can do. When your working experience was saying, this is not good for me. Right? And then you see this kind of wave of union activism after the saying, like, you know what? If our leaders are not going to argue for our best interest, if our leaders are not going to see that our humanity, ourselves as human beings and as workers is not worth more than there's a nothing we can do, more austerity. If that, well, guess what? We're going to get rid of those people. We're going to get rid of those union leaders who tell us that, like, we have to just suck it up. That we just, the only thing that we can do is try to defend the little things that we have. Don't get greedy, they say. Don't, oh, wait. No, look, everybody's just got to pay more for their health care. Everybody has got to kind of deal with kind of like harder work. Everybody, no, no, no. Why are we agreeing as unions, as workers, as human beings for that matter? Why are we agreeing to a race to the bottom? Why are we looking at the people who have it worst off, say, look, they have it worst off, so everybody should be have it off as worse off as they do, as opposed to looking at those people who have it worse off, say, hey, what? We're going to help them to make sure that their boat rises with everyone else's. And if we look at those boats that are way up on top of the mountaintop that have their own private pools and private waterfalls and all that other kind of stuff, you know, guess what? You might have to come down for that mountaintop because we are many and you are few, and yet you've taken it all from us. Right? So it's good to hear. So I want to play you just a little clip. I don't know if people caught this, but this is uh, last night, um, UAW President uh, Sean Fain went, um, did a Facebook Live, um, did basically go ahead and announce the strikes. And just wanna, I think I'm going to, this will come through okay. Um, just want to play you a bit of what he said so you can hear the announcement to workers. Here we go. This is Sean Fain, President of UAW. Good evening, UAW family. I'm going to be brief because time's of the essence. For the past 24 hours, we've been actively bargaining with Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. For the first time in our union's history, we had all three companies bargaining right here at the Solidarity House, leading into the final hours of our strike deadline. We've been working hard trying to reach a deal for economic and social justice for our members. We have been firm. We are committed to winning an agreement with the big three that reflects the incredible sacrifice and contributions UAW members have made to these companies. We've been open. The companies, the members, and the public know that what we've been fighting for. And we've been clear Midnight on the evening of September 14th is a deadline. UAW family, that deadline is nearly here. Tonight, for the first time in our history, we will strike all three of the big three at once. We are using a new strategy, the stand-up strike. We will call on select facilities, locals, or units to stand up and go on strike. Tonight, we call on three units to stand up and go on strike at midnight if we do not reach a tentative agreement in the next two hours. We're calling on GM, Wentzville Assembly, 
Local 2250 in Region 4 to stand up and strike. We're calling on Stellantis, Toledo Assembly Complex, Local 12 in Region 2B to stand up and strike. And we're calling on Ford, Michigan Assembly Plant, Final Assembly and Paint Only, Local 900 in Region 1A to stand up and strike. These three units are being called to stand up and walk out on strike at midnight tonight. The locals that are not yet called to join the stand-up strike will continue working under an expired agreement, no contract extensions. Though the contract is expired, most of your contract is still in effect. Management cannot change terms and conditions of work in your workplace. You do not become an employee at will. You cannot be fired or disciplined for no reason. This strategy will keep the companies guessing. It will give our national negotiators maximum leverage and flexibility in bargaining. And if we need to go all out, we will. Everything is on the table. I encourage you to visit uaw.org standup for everything you need to know about working under an expired contract. No matter what, all of us need to keep organizing. Rallies, protests, red shirt days, and community events. We must show the companies you are ready to join the stand-up strike at a moment's notice. And we must show the world that our fight is a righteous fight. Again, tonight at midnight, GM Wentzville Assembly, Local 2250 in Region 4, Stellanus Toledo Assembly Complex, Local 12 in Region 2B, and Ford Michigan Assembly Plant, Final Assembly and Paint Only, Local 900 in Region 1A, will stand up and walk out on strike. There it is. There's a little bit more, but I'll stop it there. So exactly this, right? Thinking about creative new strategies, right? You know, and again, it was funny because, uh, you know, some of the reporting, especially some of the labor reporting on this, um, when uh, some of the plants that were not called, right, to be in that first round of strikes, they were like disappointed. They were ready to go, right? But that's what you want, right? You want every worker on a moment's notice, right, in your bargaining unit being willing to, to strike on a moment's notice, now, what I want to point out about this is that you cannot get to that degree of discipline without tons of organizing and practice and work, right? Everything that is happening right now with the UAW, right? Everything that's happening in this strike right now has everything to do with the change in the organizing culture in the UAW. It has to do with the same kind of energy that has, that's happening there with Starbucks workers. That is the same kind of energy that we saw with the UPS, um, UPS negotiations and UPS workers that were ready to strike. I remember this from my own experience, obviously, from 2016 when Abscuff went out on its first ever strike. And I remember, I mean, again, I know there's different experiences in different universities, but I know. I mean, it's what I felt. And that's what ended up being the case at Kutztown University. We had everybody was prepared to strike, and we did, and we won. So do what you can, 
I would say follow UAW, uh, Facebook, follow them on, on Twitter or X, whatever, follow them on threads, follow them on social media, follow them on, on YouTube, right? And look, look for their solidarity funds, look for opportunities that um, you could stand up for solidarity strikes or solidarity, start join solidarity pickets in the area. Uh, right now, obviously, as you heard uh, Sean Fain say, that is uh, right now there are not plants in Pennsylvania that are on strike, um, but that may change, right? Um, looking for those opportunities um, to actually show solidarity with this. Now, the Teamsters have already stood up and they basically have said, you know what, we're not crossing picket lines. So, hey, good luck getting your parts delivered uh, to your plants, big three auto companies. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's great. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. You want to try to bring in scab labor? Well, what are they going to work on, right, if the Teamster is not going to cross picket lines? Um. So this is fantastic, right? I mean, this is fantastic that UAW, and look, and they did, right? They announced this long ago. This is our deadline, right? You had all summer long to get these negotiations, right? This is our deadline, and we're going to stick to it, right? And they did. They, they bargained as long as they could. They went right up to the deadlines. Okay, well, that was our deadline, so here we go. Morning, Emily. What's up? What's up? There you go. Now, I also wanted to point out, and this is something, again, thinking forward, and this is where I was super impressed with uh, the UAW's approach to say, we are not, we are going to get rid of tears in our faculty, in our faculty, getting rid of tears among our workers, right? We don't want to basically say that there is going to be, uh, um, we don't want to say that there's going to be, this class of workers is going to get crapped on while this class of workers is going to get its benefits, right? That had been, you know, part of like old school kind of like, hey, you know, longtime members, we're going to make sure we take care of them. But yeah, you know, maybe we'll sell out the younger workers, right? Or the newer workers, or maybe we'll allow reclassification of the sectors of workers, right? So that these people who've been around for a while can, you know, keep their, all their good stuff, Right. That is a, that is the worst possible strategy you can have as a as a union negotiator or a union leadership is to sell out the future. <laughs> right. Well, and instead of that, this is a great piece that was uh, published also in, in these times today by Luis Feliz Leon. A uh, piece is called Will the Clean Energy Auto Economy Be Built on Factory Floors Riddled with Toxic Chemicals and Safety Hazards? Big question mark. Right. And then the subtitle is the workers at, uh, at an uh, Altium. So uh, an Ultium sales plant in Ohio are fighting for fair wages and safety on the job. What happens there could set a similar um, tone for similar joint venture plants across the country. So now again, look, most of us aren't aware of the way that these um, kind of production facilities are organized, right? Because most of us do not work in one, right? So this is why this reporting is so critical. So this is how uh, he begins the piece. So 30-year-old 30, 30 Rick Savage was among the first workers hired at Altium Cell's um, 2.8 million square foot battery plant in Lordstown, Ohio in April 2022. Quote, I heard about the battery plant and how it was going to be technologically superior to all other manufacturing companies. Unquote. Savage remembers thinking, quote, the future of the automotive injury is going to be electric. Unquote. Altium Cells was a high-profile joint venture between the U.S. automaker General Motors and South Korea's LG Energy Solution. The Lordstown plant, billed as the largest battery plant of its kind anywhere in the country, was predicted to cost some $2.3 billion and generate more than 1,100 new jobs. GM's legacy as a union employer was part of the company's sales pitch to new employees. They were saying, hey, it's the new GM. You could retire here. It's going to be great, Savage said. Right. But that's not what happened. Right. 
goes through some other kind of workers here that had worked um, at other plants, right? This one guy, um, last name Anderson, James Anderson, a worker who had, uh, this is not his actual name because he was worried about retribution. He's one of the thousands who lost their jobs in Northeastern Ohio after GM's Lordtown plant closed, and now he's kind of working for this place, right? So Anderson previously earned $21 an hour in his union job making brake lines as a GM supplier of comprehensive logistics. When Altium opened up, quote, people were expecting to get the same type of pay as GM workers, unquote, he said. Quote, when you hear GM in this town, you think of good benefit uh, of a good benefit job, a good paying job, something you could retire from and, you know, prosper, unquote. But he was earning only $15 an hour as a material handler at Altium. Quote, it's a very steep pay cut. He tells, tells the company, he tells me in the company's parking lot at 5 a.m. during a shift change in August. Many of the jobs of Altium are highly skilled and workers interviewed for this article say they toil with an often hazardous environment. At other GM plants, workers who assemble cars often start at $18 an hour and top out at $32 an hour. Those wages are assured by a master labor agreement with the GM negotiated by the United Auto Workers. But as, quote, joint ventures... The electrical vehicle plants in GM and the other big three automakers aren't covered in the labor agreement. The contracts for some 150,000 workers across the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, that are expiring that now they're on strike for, and the safety standards of wages for these electric vehicle workers loom large over UAW's ongoing negotiations. The UAW is demanding that workers at electric vehicle battery plants receive the same pay, benefits, and safety standards as UAW members at the other auto factories. What's at stake is no less than the future of American car manufacturing, and all eyes are watching how these negotiations will play out. UAW President Sean Fain, elected in March as part of reform slate backed by the rank-and-file movement, Unite All Workers for Democracy, has pledged to lead a strike if necessary, as they are doing now, right? Um, and the union's ambitious goals, and this is the key, chief among them, ending tiers on wages and benefits in which long-term workers enjoy better wages and benefits than new hires doing the same work. A two-week strike could cost GM $1.3 billion in profits, according to one city um, analyst estimate. Now, quote, Altium Cells shows us that we are in danger of replacing oil barons with battery barons, who are happy to take billions in taxpayer handouts while offering jobs that are dangerous and pay poverty wages, unquote. Fain tells in these times, quote, we are going to see this pattern play out in communities across the country, from the Great Lakes down to the Gulf of Mexico, unless unions fight for a just transition that doesn't leave workers and working class communities behind. There it is right there. This article, please do check it out. The link will be in the show notes because, uh, again, this is, um, this is a piece by Luis Feliz Leon. Uh, it's in In These Times. The piece is called Will the Clean Energy Economy Be Built on Factory Floors Riddled with Toxic Chemicals? Uh, for those folks who are kind of uh, watching us on uh, YouTube right now, I'm just jumping, I'm just dropping the link to the article um, into uh, chat. But um, the key here, right, is that this agreement isn't just about whether or not, or this, I should say, the strike now is not just about like making sure that existing workers are going to be taken care of. It's adjusting kind of systemic inequities that have been built into these kind of like horrible contracts for year after year after year that see the degradation of work within the auto industry, but not just the auto industry. This has happened to everybody across this country. And if you remember back to the Green New Deal, right, when the Green New Deal was being proposed, one of the key provisions of the Green New Deal, which is why it was so awesome, was to say, to talk about these words, just transition. 
right? If we need to get off fossil fuels, right? That is going to like, I mean, there's no way around it. That is going to impact, right? Sectors of the economy that deal with fossil fuels, right? And so the worst possible like way to make the transition, right? Is to just basically tell all those folks whose jobs and livelihoods depend upon it that they're screwed. Like the worst thing you could do is basically set, like turn to folks who have, who've made kind of their living kind of like, you know, working in coal mines and say, yep, coal mines got to be shut down. And uh, I guess you're shit out of luck. Too bad you chose to work in that industry. That is like the worst possible message that you give to anybody. And it is arrogant. It is elitist. Right. And it has more to do about preserving the elite status of people who are already benefiting from the system and selling out workers and people who are negatively impacted. Right. And not only that, not only is it affecting their livelihoods, these are also communities, right, who have had their communities decimated by things like the fossil fuel industry. Right. They've had to deal with pollution, ongoing health issues. Right. The pollution of their water, the destruction of their environments. Right. And so this is just one. I mean, obviously, we're seeing this through the lens of the UAW, right? The UAW, the car workers, but they can see it happening in their industry. They know they know where it's going. They have an example now of this battery plant, which is basically looking to sever workers from stable, well-paying jobs and doing it through these partnerships, which are then technically outside the scope of existing agreements, right? This is an old play by corporate America. And it's amazing seeing that, no, UAW is going to put that front and forward, like, like right at the front of the issues that they're bargaining over. That's amazing. So this is going to be, this is one to watch. This is going to be one to support and make sure that we're kind of involved with this. Now, as here's the other thing, right? So this is, you know, I, I hear this all the time. This will come up in sometimes in, in some of my classes when we're uh, in some of the research that people are getting into or some of the readings that we're looking at. Um, but I would see this in my class, but I even hear this among kind of like coworkers and stuff, right? You know, their faculty, other union faculty, right? Um, but you also hear this kind of normally, you hear like 40% wage increase, and it seems like a lot, right? And I would submit to you that the, that only seems like a lot is because we've accepted so little for so long, right? That we've been educated to accept minimal. We've been educated that we are not worth that, that the only people that are deserving a 40% increases are the people at the top, those corporate tycoons, Right. If we see Elon Musk and we see Jeff Bezos make hand over fist profits, become the richest people and become billionaires and all that stuff, somehow that's okay. But for workers to basically demand a living wage and not just kind of like to scrape by, but a wage that is kind of worthy of the profits that are being generated for these corporations to live decent lives, good lives even, it's not too much to ask. 40% represents decades of not getting adequate raises to keep up with the increase in their productivity and the profits, right? Remember back in the post-World War II period, right? You know, you did this period of optimism and stuff like this. And you could see the charts. They go from like, you know, World War II right up until, uh, right up until the 1980s, right? Right up until when Reagan takes over, right? Right up to this new ethic of, say, neoliberalism and kind of like government is the en enemy and workers are greedy and all that stuff starts kind of seeping into our politics. But as corporate profits increased, right, it was roughly equal 
in terms of the productivity of workers increase and their wages increase, right? There was, there was shared. Now, it doesn't mean that workers made the same as corporate CEOs, right? But it means the percentage of increase in profits, right, and productivity, right, was shared, right, in terms of the worker's share of that piece. So they, they went up roughly parallel until the 1980s when those corporate profits continue to go up and wages flatlined. And that gap has only increased over the past, you know, four decades. And so this is like making up, right? This is, this is basically saying so you have systemically robbed workers and handed it off to these billionaire tycoons, right? Well, guess what? Robin Hood's coming to town, right, in the form of or an organized union, and we're going to claw some of that back. All that stuff that you took, we're taking some of that back, right? We're putting America back on a more righteous pathway, right, where we all benefit to some degree, again, still even in this case, not evenly, but all benefit from the work of all of us. You don't just get to extract from us and take from us, right? <clears throat> so as that's going on, UAW stuff is going on. Now we got to, you know, bring this back to as well, right? SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild of America, they're still on strike, right? Writers Guild has been on strike since May 2nd. Like SAG-AFTRA has been on strike since July 14th. We've seen the kind of new TV season startup, Right? We know now that people like Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher are scabs. They are not standing with the union. They are choosing to go ahead with, uh, go ahead, maybe even using scab labor or, or still producing their stuff, uh, using management labor, right? Turning their backs on their fellow writers, their fellow actors, production crews, all those folks to do it anyways, because what? Their ego? Because what? The, 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 the multi-millions that they have earned for themselves, is it enough to sustain them? What is it? Is there, you know. But still, even we have those examples, we see all these kind of like top-line actors and stuff now start doing fundraisings, right, to support the strike, right? Kind of putting up particular kind of, you know, to build up that strike fund so in order to make sure that they can keep this strike going. Uh, they don't have to accept bad terms because, like, it's the same process, right? Now, again, different industry, right? You're talking about, you know, writers and actors and kind of production assistants and camera people and all that stuff. Right? Everything that goes into making TV and film and stuff, right? They're all on strike. And their industry is seeing similar things, right? These companies, streaming companies in particular, the industry has begun to change making record profits, right? And as most actors, most of the production crews, most of the people that work in that industry, right? Their wages and stuff have flattened, right? And they're seeing that what's coming down the road. Oh, wait a minute. They want, to, they want AI to kind of be able to kind of like, you know, do their acting for them. And then, you know, no share of the profits go to actors. Nope, not going to do that. We see kind of like uh, them, the, the, the studios want to, the studios and the streaming companies basically want to kind of extract more and have more control over content. And they're like, nope, not going to do that. It's a line in the sand, right? To say they can see the future coming. And they're not just arguing for themselves now. They're not standing up for themselves now. They're standing up for the future of anyone who ever wanted to work in those areas, 
whoever wanted to be a writer, whoever wanted to be an actor, whoever wanted to be a camera person, whoever wanted to work, you know, and kind of like set up like my uncle, for example, he builds, he builds sets, right? For movies and TV, right? He builds them, right? He's worked on stuff. He worked on like Ghostbusters, right? He worked on the set of, 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 um, oh, what do you call it? Um, I can't believe I'm forgetting it. Um, it, it'll come back to me. Um, but you know, he, he just, you know, he's worked on something and he, you know, he works with crews of folks, union folks who build all this stuff that make this kind of, you know, the, the storytelling possible. I talked to him just recently. Right. And he's like, yep, these, these folks, what they want to do, right. What these studios want to do is just, it's just disgusting. 30 rock. That's what I was thinking. He worked on 30 rock. Right. And he's all clear. He's clear. What's happening right now with the streaming companies is precisely the problem, right? The greed that is in the studio's hands and the streaming company's hands, right? He's like, you know, it's just like you, you pretend you just want to write people out. Here you got a guy, right, who did like really cool, interesting work. And he knows that there was people, apprentices that came up to the people who loved it, that he's got other people interested in this stuff because it's such cool stuff. And why do you go, why are folks on strike? Why are these guys staying alive? Because they recognize they're protecting what they love, but also the future for all those people who might want to do something similar to this, to share in that because they recognize that this meant so much to them. This gave them, and, and even like, you know, you're not kind of the star of the show, but you're doing really cool work and actually able to have a family sustaining job at the same time. Got to protect that. And we're at this, you know, it seems like we're at this pivot point in this country, right? So this is why, the, you know, the, these union strikes are so important. Because we also see what, what's, the, what's on the other side of it, right? We also see, that's why I wanted to bring up that stuff about the child, child poverty, uh, Charlie's poverty, childhood poverty rate. Right, the new reports, of course, coming out and basically saying that childhood poverty rates have doubled this year. And that's because the expanded tax credit, right? You remember this, right? I know if you're listening to the show, you remember this. You remember when... Joe Biden and other folks went out there and said they passed the expanded childhood tax credit, right, to deal with, like, the impact of COVID and all this stuff, right? And it was initially part, they had it folded into the rescue plan, and people like Joe Manchin and other people didn't want it, want it to go any more than a year, right, which is the only reason why it doesn't still exist, because they wouldn't make it permanent. No, we can only do it for a year because it's COVID and blah, 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 right? I think Democrats, I think, failed to... Uh, or made a faulty assumption that once people had this, it was going to be very hard to take it away because it had such a meaningful impact. And sure enough, right, the program goes into effect. Childhood poverty rates get cut in half. One of the first things that the Biden administration does, right? Childhood poverty rates get cut in half under that expanded childhood tax credit, which shows you that, one, we have the ability, right, and it's relatively easy to cut childhood poverty, but that extends, and then what happens, right? That extends, and what happens? Uh, or, or to extend it, want to say, okay, yes, now let's renew it. Nope. People like Joe Manchin and all the Republicans in the Senate, plus Joe Manchin, basically will not extend it. And now what's that? Now what happens? What is predictable? You basically, like, halved the amount of child kids in poverty. Well, that was direct result of that particular program. Well, if you take that program away, guess what's going to happen? You are going to double the rates of childhood poverty. So Senate Republicans, most Republicans in the House, Joe Manchin made a choice 
to send thousands and thousands and thousands of kids into poverty. That's a policy choice. That's a willful policy choice. That's an immoral policy choice that they chose. And why? For political gain or something. It's disgusting. Anyways, I want to touch on a couple things real here quickly. Um, unfortunately, uh, oh, not unfortunately, I said I got a kind of cool meeting coming up that I won't share what I'm doing. Um, but a cool meeting coming up that I'm going to, uh, uh, that I got to get out um, by 11 today. So um, I won't go into this too, too long. Um, but uh, this just, just, just came out, right? Southern Poverty Law Center, I think yesterday, no, two days ago, I guess. Southern Poverty Law Center has issued a new report that focuses on extremism in the Penridge School Board. Now, you know, you've been hearing me talking about this for a while now, about the importance, how important it is for the situation that's happening in Penridge to become part of a broader narrative that's shared nationwide. Because what's happening here in Penridge, like we're the first, right? Penridge schools are the first ones to have a a for-profit kind of Christian nationalist oriented um, company, Vermilion Education, headed by Jordan Adams, that's affiliated with the Christian nationalist kind of bent, bent Hillsdale College, and um, also connected up with the Moms for Liberty, right? We're the first ones to have this Hillsdale College kind of curriculum, the whitewashing of American history, exported from a Christian nationalist-based school into a public school system. And that has been enabled in part by the strategy and the organizing tactics from Moms for Liberty, right? So the report said when Moms for Liberty um, slips, uh, flips the school board is, you know, in so many ways, essential reading, right, um, for what goes on. So just give you a flavor. This is from the, uh, um, this is just from the beginning of it, and I'll give you one more piece of it. This is from their kind of analysis. Um, again, this came out September 13th. Says, despite objections from parents, students, and teachers, such moves are dominating public education in this community just north of Philadelphia. I'm sorry, I should say, yes, I'm sorry. First came policies that eliminated safe spaces in LGBTQ plus students and restricted racially inclusive reading materials. Then the Penridge School Board voted to hire Vermilion Education, a Michigan-based consulting company with limited experience in questionable curriculum standards. Despite objections from parents, students, and teachers, such moves are dominating the public education agenda in this community just north of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now that five of the nine Penridge School Board members are linked to Moms for Liberty, the far-right so-called parental rights organization. Vermilion Education's, the Vermilion Education deal with Penridge appears to be the latest tactic in Moms for Liberty's efforts to force what many view as anti-inclusive ideals into local public education. Ranking only behind Florida, where Moms for Liberty was founded, Pennsylvania has the second largest concentration of the organization's chapters. Quote, Bucks County seems to be the epicenter from where Moms for Liberty took off in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Jenny Stevens, woo, Jenny Stevens, lift her up. Jenny Stevens, a freelance reporter for the Bucks County Beacon, a local progressive media uh, um, outlet, told Hate Watch. Though Vermilion Education is a fairly new company, its connection to Hillsdale College is a primary selling point for the Penridge board members with ties to Moms for Liberty. Long known for its objectionable education philosophies and affiliation with far-right activists, Hillsdale is a South Michigan-based private right-wing Christian college. In 1984, the school began operating on private donations after rejecting federal funds so it could refuse to implement Title IX regulations that prohibit racial and gender discrimination in its educational programs and activities. Right. Then it goes on kind of much more kind of in depth. 
I'll skip ahead a little bit. As in the Penridge School District, Moms for Liberty affiliated majorities and school boards are disregarding the expressed concerns of local stakeholders who fear that the parent, parent groups, book bans, anti-inclusion policies, and other measures endanger marginalized students and jeopardize the education of all students. After cutting social studies requirements, shadow banning books, eliminating safe spaces for LGBTQ students, and prohibiting teachers from displaying flags, stickers, or signs, and implementing policies targeting transgender students, the Penridge School Board's decision to approve Vermilion Education contract could be the tipping point in efforts to turn the schools in their district to mini Hillsdales. The majority of parents, students, and community members do not support Moms for Liberty's agenda, as evidenced by through uh, public polling by national organizations. For example, an NBC News education survey um, that polled likely midterm voters in seven states, including Pennsylvania, in May 2022, revealed that over 80% of Americans disagreed with removing from school libraries books that criticize U.S. history, have differing political views, depict slavery, or discuss race. The majority also felt that teaching about race gives students a better understanding of what others have experienced. Right. There's a lot more in this report. There's no way I could get through all this, but I wanted to give you a flavor of what this does. This report is outstanding. It's outstanding for a couple reasons, right? Um, number one, it provides, if you remember last week on this show, um, one of the things, and I actually was talking to somebody completely separately about this, um, but I, was, I, I think it was last week on the show, I was talking a little bit about, um, um, what's her name, Maggie Hanna, right? A reporter for the Inquirer who's been um, basically the only person that's been reporting on uh, what's happening here in Bucks County since um, Emily Rizzo was... Um, I don't want to say taken off. I mean, I don't know what happened, but suddenly Emily was Emily Rizzo was doing amazing reporting up here in Bucks County. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what happened. Like Paul Martino get involved in this. Uh, Paul Martino's got friends on like WHYY or something. I don't know. But suddenly her reporting stops. Right. And she's no longer kind of covering this. Right. Now, as somebody who works kind of in this area, that screams to me like, some editor decided to pull her off this for some reason. And again, I don't know. I'm just, this is conjecture on my part. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but I should also say uh, Emily Rizzo just announced that she is leaving WHYY. Um, and now she's going to be taking out some brighter things. We don't know where she, what she's going to be writing about, where she's going to be yet. Um, but I should take this moment, I guess, at least to thank Emily Rizzo for her amazing, amazing reporting and all the, um, the background work that she's done on what's happening here in these school districts, um, like nobody else, um, um, barring, of course, the Bucks County Beacon. Right. <clears throat> Anyways, that's a, kind of a long way around. But, you know, Maggie Hanna's, uh, when her reporting on this, you know, tends to be reporting of describing what happened, right? Um, and again, this is not faulting her. This happens to be the, the kind of reporting that she's being asked to do for the Philadelphia Inquirer. But what's missing, of course, from that kind of reporting has to do with the explanatory aspect of journalism, right? To help the community and help other folks in other communities understand what it is that, um, um, what it is that's happening at Penridge and, and why it's important and how it can, and how this can happen elsewhere. It is a playbook, right? This is a testing ground. And I think that's the way that story needs to run. And I've been saying now for weeks that this is the kind of, if not months, that this is the kind of story that needs to be more part of a national story so people understand it. And I get, as I've said thousands of times already, you know, I get why Central Buck School District got such a highlight and got such a spotlight because of their, you know, 
the the heft that they have, third largest public school di- um, um, school district in the state. Also, lots of kind of influential characters in Bucks County. Bucks County's long long time connection with the art and kind of public community and 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 reporting communities in New York City. A whole bunch of stuff like that, right? I mean, there's a lot of reasons why um, Central Bucks had such a central um, became so important, and of course, they were known as an outstanding school district. Um, but pe- what's happening at Penridge? is more reflective of what, of what more, most school districts look like, right? Most school districts don't have the heft and the weight of something like Central Bucks, right? And are more open, more open to the possibility, especially when people aren't paying attention and don't understand the dynamics of being taken over by Moms for Liberty supported, um, um, supported members who will then implement like kind of far right Christian curricula in our school boards, in our schools, public schools. Right. So anyways, so that's that. So please do check it out. Have information on that. Um, uh, you know, a couple of things I just wanted to put on, um, put on kind of notice here. Um, one, as I mentioned at the, at the headlines, at the beginning of the show that, um, you know, we're expecting, you know, I'm very, I'm looking forward to this, this is the first, uh, kind of all members town hall being held by uh, ABSCUF to let us know what's happening in our contract negotiations. Um, you know, we've got kind of routine updates from uh, about negotiations, which are similar to the ones I read at the top of the show. It's kind of like these issues were discussed, right? But not really a sense of, you know, we think that things have been happening. They have been talking, but what are the issues? What's the holdup? If everything seems to be going so well, how come an agreement wasn't reached before the end of the um, before the contract deadline of June 30th? Right. So, again, if somebody's been through this enough times, you know that there's some kind of sticking issues here. So the big question is, is that what are those issues? Right. Why don't we have an agreement? Right. And what seems to be the ask from the state system of higher education? We've already seen a chancellor who has basically forced the consolidation of six universities into three, right, um, against the wishes of faculty of students in the community, right? We've also, except for his, of course, his cherry-picked kind of and sometimes fabricated students um, who kind of, you know, will benefit from this system, although conditions in those things, in those, um, in those schools seem to beg to differ with his assessment. We've also seen a kind of, you know, freeze on hiring. We've seen kind of like a very, very low morale. We've seen the uh, the uh, unwillingness, at least at our university, to hire full time kind of non tenure track faculty, full time adjuncts. They want to have make it all piecemeal work to make sure that they those people cannot be converted to full time work. Right. We've seen um, uh, the contingency and the um, uh, and the the insecurity of jobs being kind of you know ramping through the roof. We've seen, at least as far as as far as I can remember, we've seen really significant numbers of faculty choosing to leave um, younger faculty who came here thinking that, you know, started building programs and everything, see what's going on and are like, I'm out of here and have taken off. Right. Um, you know, we'll see what goes on, you know? Um, so that's going to happen. And so the reason I bring it up now is like, number one, personally, I'm, I'm looking forward to that town hall to hearing a little bit more about what's going on. Because I, I really don't, I don't know really what's at stake or what's at issue. Um, I mean, maybe people in certain leadership circles are aware of that. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I read everything that comes from my union and, and I, I don't really have a sense of what's at stake in these negotiations. So, so we shall see. Um, 
and then we'll have a better sense of what's going to happen going forward. I mean, um, maybe they're close to an agreement. I don't know. Um, maybe that's it, but what we shall see. Um, my guess would always be that there is, um, my guess will always be that there's some kind of sticking issue. And then um, we're going to be asked to kind of having to make some hard choices. That's, that's kind of my, my guess, but we shall see. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, uh, Christopher said, yeah, the realization that one has to contribute to a pension for 30 years as a Penn State adjunct to be vested. Yep, 100%. Right? It's just a way of kind of, it's it's dangling a carrot. Look, you can qualify for a pension, but then, you know, the fine print said, yeah, for 30 years, you have to work in contingent work in order to be able to do that. Yep, 100%. Uh, and the last thing I want to say before I got a, before I got a jet for the day is... Um, you may or may not have seen this already. Uh, Cyril Michaleko has written a, um, a new piece for the Bucks County Beacon that's announcing their uh, fall fund drive. Um, and they are looking to uh, kind of, again, expand the work the Beacon has done. The Bucks County Beacon, I think it's fair to say, has become an indispensable part of kind of, um, kind of organizing and uh, reporting uh, for our communities here. Um, it deserves to all the support it can get. I've been thrilled to actually been able to kind of um, lend some of my kind of like abilities there by helping produce their podcast, both the signal and the new um, podcast, the civic circle. Um, fantastic example of collaboration and trying to really think about how you build a kind of, uh, kind of independent, fearless um, media network um, that can fill, uh, you know, as Cyril says, the news desert here in Bucks County. Um, and speaking of that, I'll just leave you with his words um, for uh, about this fund drive. And he says, look, if we're going to be here for the long haul and save Bucks County from becoming a news desert where extremism and authoritarianism flourishes, we need the community to invest in this independent media project 100%. So I'm going to have them on the show this coming Monday and out to, out to Coop Live at 7 p.m. Um, that's September 18th at 7 p.m. Um, going to have them on the show to talk a little bit about, um, you know, where the beacon's going, um, what its plans are ahead of it. We're going to talk about the fund drive, talk about the need for a kind of a strongly community supported independent media project, um, why that becomes so critical. You know, um, it, 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 it's, these projects are not easy to do, right? I'm um, to build a sustaining independent media project is not something that is easy to do. Right. There's ways of doing it in, way, in, in ways that, say, for example, you know, depends on, I don't know, uh, you know, depends on the uh, on people giving like nothing but their unpaid labor. <laughs> right. You know, um, that which, you know, nobody wants that, um, that you want to be able to kind of create, you know, sustainable journalism and sustainable journalists. Right. But you can't do that unless you're kind of funded. And there's multiple ways you can fund stuff, right? You can fund through advertising, which of course is what, you know, what most media has done. Um, you can fund your, you know, fund yourself by having some kind of like angel donor, right? You know, this is what the right-wing media does. I mean, they've got like multimillionaires lining up to kind of like hand out kind of hundreds of thousands of dollars to kind of support projects which may or may not work, right? We don't have that, right? Uh, and, and progressive circles, right? We don't have this kind of like, you know, like donors, like right, we don't have like left-wing donors like lining up and kind of looking for opportunities to kind of invest in projects, right? Um, you know, there are people that, you know, may they are generous, right? Just people that come on and help support my show, right? The only reason Raging Chicken has been around for as long as it has been is because of community-based members. But, you know, we're a little small thing, 
Bucks County Beacon has, you know, much bigger ambitions to be more to this community than, than I could possibly do. Right. But that means that we have to think about who we want the Bucks County Beacon to be accountable to. Right. That's why they're launching this fund drive, because if Bucks County Beacon has large numbers of community subscriptions, right, that we subscribe to the beacon, we say that we are going to support the beacon, right, then they are accountable to us, right, not some ad dollars, right, not some kind of like, you know, like who knows, maybe some kind of like, you know, um, like drop and hoping that somebody's going to leave us their fortune when they pass or something, you know, like this. No, responsive to the community. And that's where they want to be. They've proven it, right? I mean, what the Bucks County Beacon has been able to do in the short time that it's been here is astounding to me, right? So, you know, again, am I am I kind of, you know, uh, being a little bit of a booster for the Beacon? You bet I am because um, I, I, I we've needed something like this for a long time. So I'm going to have them on the show on Monday for Out to Coop Live at 7 p.m. Uh, we're going to talk to Cyril Michaleko, the editor-in-chief, and we're going to talk about um, to Emily Smith, the publisher, and we're going to talk about all the stuff about what the Beacon has done and where it's going to go and how you can help support them. I hope you'll join the show because I think the more folks that are kind of part of that conversation through the, you know, through the chat, um, we run it right here on our, on our program through our chat, through the conversation. I'll keep the Discord open during that time too as well. Um, just to make sure that we got multiple avenues for people to put in their, um, their two bits, to ask questions, um, to give their comments, to give feedback. Um, the, the more of the community that's kind of part of that, I think the better, the better for all of us. So anyways, all right, everybody, I got a jet. I got to get out of here. Uh, I got a meeting I got to get to in about 10 minutes. So I'm going to, um, kind of say my farewells for now. I uh, want to remind you that you can help support this show by heading on over to patreon.com slash RC press. You become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, you know, you want progressive media, we need you. Stand up. I'm a patron. All right, everybody. Take it easy. See ya! I guess I'll fly away now.